Hello friends, James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com with another edition of Solutions Watch. And this week on the D program, I want to discuss what I would call is a, a silent pandemic that is taking place under the cover of the scamdemic. In this case, not COVID-19, but the psychological trauma that has been inflicted on the population over the past couple of years. And I think, unfortunately, we all know, if not directly personally ourselves, we at least know people in our lives who have been affected by this trauma. And although this is a source I would never ordinarily cite, I think that this is actually reflective of something that I've talked about before. Uh, this is an article from vice.com. What is all this isolation doing to us? Which has the subheadline, scientists have described the pandemic as the largest isolation study in history. And the effects are only just becoming clearer over time. And of course, this goes on to detail some of that psychological trauma that I'm alluding to. And although, as I say, I'm sure we all have our experience with it, it has unfortunately hit very close to home with the Corbett Report community recently. I have only just learned of the fact that a member of the Corbett Report community, someone who has commented quite frequently under the username of Arby, has apparently opted to take his own life after having dealt with incredible hardships uh, as a result of the mandates, etc. Um, losing his job, the threat of losing his home, and apparently did not feel that he had any other option. He ended up unfortunately, apparently taking his own life as a result of this. And unfortunately, this is not a, uh, a one-off occurrence or something that is particularly rare. There have been a number of people in the Corporate Report comments who have shared their experiences of friends and loved ones having taken their life during the past two years. This is an incredibly serious topic. It could not be more serious. And since this is Solutions Watch, of course the question is, what can we do about this silent pandemic that is taking place all around us, this hopelessness, this despair that so many people are feeling right now, we definitely need an answer to that. And so it is remarkable timing, actually, that just in the past week, uh, I was alerted to an article that deals with this exact subject that is on so many people's minds right now. Uh, this article is called Acceptance of and Commitment to Freedom. And it is by Ian Davis, who I'm sure you will recognize from his previous appearances on The Corbett Report, most recently Interview 1668, where we dissected the pseudo-pandemic, looking at uh, Ian Davis's book, Pseudo-Pandemic, New Normal Technocracy. Ian Davis, thank you for joining us on the program once again. Uh, thank you very much for having me, James. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm so sorry to hear about the loss of Arby. That's, that's terrible news. It certainly is. But as I say, unfortunately, it is not all that uncommon in this particular era. So let's start dissecting this problem that I refer to. As I say, I think a lot of people are feeling hopelessness and despair right now for all sorts of different reasons. And unfortunately, that is not just mere happenstance. That is not simply a perceptual error on the part of people. I think this is something that has been drilled into the population. This is one of the things that I think the would-be social engineers have been actually attempting to accomplish with this scamdemic. And this is something that you go into in your article. So just to set the table, I'd just like to read the opening of your article where you note that there are many things we can do to liberate ourselves and each other from the tyranny of government. Unfortunately, for generations, we have been educated to believe we are powerless. 
Supposedly, our voice can only be heard through the ballot box, our extremely limited ability to lobby, and whatever protests we are allowed. This is a deception. We have all the power, government has none, and we can change the world whenever we choose. So Ian Davis, the floor is yours. Tell us about this feeling of hopelessness, despair that many people have had instilled in them and where this is really coming from. Well, there's a, there's a, a concerted effort to change our behaviour using applied psychology and behavioural change techniques. And that's been ongoing since the start of whatever you call it, the pseudo pandemic or whatever. Um, and that is and it's something that is commonly acknowledged um, that the, the use of these techniques and the use of behavioural change is acknowledged at the highest level. The World Health Organization, for example, um, openly discuss how to change people's behaviour. The way that they discuss it is always couched in terms of positive health choices and so forth. So this is the way that they, if you like, sell this idea to the um, public who are, you know, and obviously not all of the public are aware of it, but those that are, if you read any of the World Health Organization's documents or indeed any of, you know, I'm based in the UK, so the UK government's documents and their scientific advisory group's documents, it's always sold to us as if it's some kind of beneficial, um, beneficial act that they are doing, which it could be, you know, that you it could be done to support people to make positive changes. But however, it can also be used without people's knowledge to reframe the way that they think about situations that they find themselves in and to get us to comply with behavioural orders and instructions, which is how it has been used throughout the um, pseudo pandemic. And that and using it in that way is totally unethical. It's not the kind of um, that it's not the purpose of behavior change work to make people's lives worse. The whole point of of something like acceptance and commitment therapy um, is that is that it supports people to make the changes that they want to make in their lives to use it to cajole people into behavioural compliance, especially without their knowledge, um, is, is a totally unethical thing to do. It absolutely, undeniably is. However, I think there is still a large section of the public, even people who follow the independent media, who might not have any idea that behavioural uh, change and behavioural therapy uh, types te of techniques are being applied against the public to change and shift their perceptions and to make them feel this powerlessness, this helplessness, this need for government. And this isn't conspiracy theorizing. No, we know the names of the groups and the people who populate those groups who are now, even as we speak, working to instill fear in the population. This is not hyperbole, and this is something that you point to in your article. Tell us about some of these groups that are working on these uh, types of uh, uh, techniques right now. Yeah, so so at the at the World Health Organization level, at the global level, if you like, we've got the um, technical um, advisory group TAG, who are advisors on uh, World Health Organization's behavioural change programs, and that's chaired by Cass Professor Cass Sunstein, who um, has written 
extensively in the past about the use of these techniques, specifically in a document um, called Conspiracy Theory that he and uh, another researcher, Dr. Vermeule, um, spoke about how you could undermine what he said people, what he called conspiracy theory, which was basically, if you look at look at how he explained that, I think he called them uh, it, that the conspiracy theorists were epistemologically challenged. I believe was what he he used. So there were, but the point is in in that document, if you look at it, there was no discussion about looking at the evidence or debating the evidence or having some kind of reasoned public debate. That was not what he was suggesting. What he was suggesting was a set of strategies and techniques to undermine the the position of those making those arguments. Rather than address their arguments with rational debate, he suggested a, a kind of a concerted effort to marginalise, discredit and and turn other people specifically turn the wider wider public against the people that are making those criticisms. So that's got nothing to do with uh, an appropriate use of applied psychology or an appropriate use of behavioural change techniques. That is purely misuse of those of those techniques. And then if we also look at TAG, another member of TAG is, is Susan Mitchie, who is uh, a leading member in the UK of the UK Scientific Advisory Group in Emergencies. Now, she is also a member of the subgroup of that, who are the, the of course, SPY-B, and they're, they're the uh, behavioural change specialists within the Scientific Advisory Group in Emergencies. And they have openly stated, they, they put out a document in March um, 2020 um, in which they openly advocated um, terrorising the public and and using and using that that fear that they would that they would cause in partnership with the media and I think that's a very key aspect of what they said. They said they wanted to use the media to create this environment of fear, um, and they did that because. They're not, they didn't want people to think rationally about, about their situation. They didn't want people to, to think about the evidence. They didn't want people to think about, about the, the experiences that they were having if they looked outside of their window. They wanted them to live in an environment of fear. And I think there's a, um, a quote um, that we can take take from that document. So there's a series of quotes. So if you, if you take the, the, the document as a whole... These quotes are found in the document and in the appendices. But if you if you put that together into what they, that they are, if you like the purpose of that document, that that some of those quotations are a substantial number of people still do not feel sufficiently personally threatened. The perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased among those who are complacent using hard-hitting emotional messaging. Some people will be persuaded by appeals to play, uh, to, to play by the rules, some by a duty to the community, and some to personal risk. All these different approaches are needed. And then later in the appendices, they added, use the media to increase the sense of personal threat. Consider the use of social disapproval for failure to comply. So they were advising the government basically to use similar techniques that were outlined by Sunstein in, in his 
dot bit paper with the mule. That is not only to cause a general sense of fear, but also to divide people. So to use threats and to use uh, the, the people that were living in fear due to the use of misuse of these techniques, turn them against the people that were questioning if this was, an, uh, you know, if, if this was warranted, uh, which is pre precisely what they, what the UK government outlined in a previous document called Mindspace, which they published in 2010, which was part of something called the Nudge Unit. Well, the Nudge, nudge Unit used to be part of the, of the UK government cabinet office. Well, the cabinet office, a lot of, I think a lot of people are looking at the UK government now thinking that the cabinet office is like a government within the government. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, it looks like it's in control of everything. Um, and when it, while it was, it's now been farmed out, I would, I would add, uh, once they realised that it could be this, that this could be done successfully, they farmed out the nudge unit. It's now called the Behavioural Insights Team, and it's a kind of, kind of semi-private um, service, which they, and they are selling this service globally to other governments that want to use the same misuse of these techniques. Uh, and the idea behind Mindspace was to use these techniques to change your situation within what they call the choice environment and this is this is common to behavioral change this is not this is not anything you know it's not a radical shift or anything like that but it was to re redefine your choice environment within parameters that define what your behavioral choices will be so once you're within that choice, what they call the choice environment, which would be created in this case by be we're using the media to create that choice environment, your behavioural response can then be predicted because it's set within a controlled, limited set of responses. So you're, the only response you can give is to your, you know, it's not dis, it's not it's not unfair to say brainwashing. So you can be you can be brainwashed to accept a reality that isn't necessarily true. And the, the really powerful aspect of what Mindspace talks about is that people aren't aware that they haven't got free choice. They, they still believe that they've got free choice and they're not aware that this is being done to them. So when psychologically, if we believe we're acting with free will, we're far more likely to act on that than, than we are if we think someone is trying to tell us something or sell us something or push us in a certain direction. So the point of setting up the choice environment is to deceive the subject into believing that they have free choice when in reality they don't because the choices have already been defined for them. And, the, and a quote that comes directly from Mindspace um, is, is that um, people have emotional responses to words uh, and people can experience a behavioural reaction before they realise what they are reacting to. This shifts the focus of attention away from facts and information and towards altering the context within which people act. Behavioural approaches embody a line of thinking that moves from the idea of an autonomous individual making rational decisions to a situated decision maker, much of whose behavior is automatic 
and is influenced by their choice environment. So that's that's that is that is what we have faced throughout, and, and government have put all of that into practice. It, it, it's such an important thing to understand. So I appreciate all of that 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 background, and I have referred a few times to Laura Dodsworth's re, uh, recent book on a state of fear, where she talks about the nudge unit and Spy B and their role in shaping the public's response over the past couple of years and the last several years as well. Um, but I appreciate you bringing up the WHO Technical Advisory Group on Behavioral Insights and Sci- Sciences for Health led by Sunstein, as you as you note, uh, as well as World Bank members, World Economic Forum members, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation members, as well as Professor Susan Mitchie, as you point out. Uh, that's an incredibly important group. But what you're gesturing to here is such such a, in, in some ways, such a basic insight, but such a powerful and important one that we neglected at our own risk, which if I can put this in my own layman's terms, I would say if you can frame people's perception of a problem or a situation, then you can in some ways direct their response to it without ever telling them necessarily what to do. And an example of that that I would cite, what was the common phrase that we all heard over and over and over in the in the first months or weeks even of this pseudo-pandemic? It was we're all in this together. We're all in this together and setting that environment. It's about a communal thing that is happening to all of us. And our decisions are going to reflect on the, and have an impact on the community. And they're calling what, what's the, the trade name of the approved mRNA vaccine in the United States now? Community. It's a, it's a combination of community and mRNA, etc. These are highly focused and I think, quite intentional framing of the situation in order to get people thinking in certain directions, in order to get them acting in certain directions. And I think people either neglect that or scoff at the idea that behavioral change techniques actually work to their own detriment. Because as you point out, they are a tool and they can absolutely be employed by people of nefarious purposes for nefarious reasons, but they can be used by ourselves to move towards freedom and to regaining our sovereignty and power. So let's move into that that section of the conversation, since this is Solutions Watch. What is acceptance and commitment therapy, and how does that apply to this conversation? Yeah, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy is a form of cognitive therapy um, that is used widely um, around the world for treatment of all kinds of of uh, mental health conditions, uh, people that have got behavioural problems, and uh, I'll be more so, for example, addiction, um, which is a combination of um, behavioural problems and um, psychological issues often, and physical, uh, you know, with addiction, there's also a physical element that comes into it. But even, uh, it's even used for people with um, schizophrenia, um, there was a study that showed it was incredibly powerful uh, and effective with schizophrenia. Um, it's a it's a behavioural control tool that we can learn, and I think that's that that's the main point. Anyone can learn to use ACT. So anyone can learn to use, if you like, your own behavioural change toolkit um, for themselves. And that's the whole the whole point of ACT. ACT is to empower people to be able to make the changes they want to make in their lives. What we've seen is the misuse of that. But 
it doesn't have to be like that. We can we can take control of this ourselves and we can start thinking about how we would want to move towards something better. So I think one of the, you know, the, the, when I started with the article talking about the fact that we often imagine that the only way that we can make change is through the, the, the political process, the processes that are open to us. Um, and perhaps through lobbying or perhaps through the things that we buy and so forth. Um, but we can make change, behavioural change ourselves. And if we if we all do, for example, if we all in the UK, we have to pay a TV licence. So if we all stopped paying the TV licence, there really isn't much that the, that the, me, main, the media could do about it. We might not. We, there's a there are always consequences. This is another point. There are always consequences to our actions. So the consequence would be, obviously, in the UK that you wouldn't be able to watch telly. But it, nonetheless, that would send a massive shock to the establishment and to the media that we're not going to accept this kind of behavioural change that is, that is coming to us through the screen, that we're not accepting it. And we don't, we're certainly not going to pay for it. So these are things that we can do as individuals. We could each individually choose to, to make a change of a behaviour, in this case, deciding that we're going to spend our money on something else. But if we collectively make those individual choices, then if enough of us do, then it is inevitable that we will create the world that we want to see. And, you know, it's going back to, to what Mahatma Gandhi said. We are a mirror to the world. So it's what we do can, well, not can, it will change our environment around us. We can take control of the situation. But in order to do that, enough of us need to understand how we can do that. And acceptance and commitment is a way, and commitment therapy is a way of achieving that. So at its core, what acceptance and commitment therapy is about is being aware of our behavioural choices. So, for for example, if I'm if I have an addiction problem, then it it could be said that you know the act of let's say drinking drinking is one behaviour that causes me additional harm. I'm I'm ha effectively harming myself. But on my way to I have to, in order to drink, I need to go out of the house. I need to put my shoes on. I need to go out of the house. I need to walk down the road. I need to go to the shop. I need to buy the alcohol i need to take it home so all along that path there are all decisions that i am making about my behavior so i'm deciding to put my shoes on i'm deciding to walk out the door i'm deciding to walk up the road I'm, and every single one of those behavioral opportunities is an opportunity for me to say hang on a minute what am i doing what why am i doing this is what i'm doing is what I'm doing helping me or is what I'm doing likely to cause me harm? What's more important to me than than drinking? And, and act, you work with, with act, you work with people to discover what is more important to them than their lives, than, than possibly life limiting or potentially fatal behavior. So each one of those steps is an opportunity to break that behavioral pattern. If even if it's right at the beginning of the process when I'm putting my shoes on, if at that moment I seize control of my behavior and think, hang on, this is leading me away from something that is even something as minor as putting my shoes on. I break that behavioral, 
that inexorable behavioural path towards something which is potentially going to harm me. So with ACT, you work with people to focus on what is important to them. And, and I think it's very important with, accept, within, with acceptance and commitment to be honest with yourself about what is important to you. Because honestly, for example, if you're using a substance, using that drug is important to you. You can't pretend it isn't. It's something that might have been dominating your life for many years. So you can't then pretend that um, rebuilding relationships with my family is more important to me than using this drug, when clearly that's not true, because you're using the drug knowing that you're destroying relationships with your family, for example. So clearly you have to confront the reality of what is actually happening for you. And what is actually happening for you in this case is an addiction possibly to a substance. So you, you need to develop something that is genuinely more important to you. Now, often that could be it could be something like, you know, you love your dog. You want to care for your dog or you want to you want to uh, improve your education or, or, or get back into your get back into the workplace. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter as long as it gives you a genuine behavioral choice because I'm not going to stop using a substance if I've got nothing better to move towards. So I think what that means is for us, for us, is that if we, if freedom really matters, and I think this is the point, we need, if we really want to live a better life and to have, you know, a, a, a not have people like Spy B or Tag using these kind of control mechanisms on us against our will or not not even against our will without our knowledge then we don't want to live in a world like that if we want to create that world then we need to take do the things consistently that will move us closer to that world if we do that even if it's tiny little things like where we where we go shopping um paying the tea buying what media you consume whatever it is if we every time we make those little choices, we think, right, how, where does this take me? Does this take me one step closer to tyranny or does this take me one step closer to freedom? And if freedom really matters and we consistently move towards what is important to us, in this case, freedom, then it is inevitable that if enough of us do that on, in a sufficient scale, that is what we will create because we will effectively create a demand for freedom. And businesses around the world will respond to that. And governments around the world will have no choice but to respond to that. If we create the demand for freedom, that's what where we will go. However, if we move away from that, so if we think of our behavior in terms of moving towards something or away from something, if we consistently move away from freedom, and towards tyranny, which perhaps that might be just agreeing to never use cash. So you, you go into a store and the store says, oh, sorry, we don't take cash. Cash is really important part of this. We need to retain it. And we certainly need to retain monetary freedom. So if I'm in that moment, I'm confronted with a behavioral choice. I can either go in the shop and, and spend my money in there which would move me away from freedom or I can move towards freedom and not frequent that shop and find one that will take cash. So that's 
essentially how we can use acceptance and commitment to move towards freedom. Well, I, I feel that I understand this, although I must confess I'd never specifically heard, at least not the, the specific reference to acceptance, acceptance and commitment therapy before reading your article, but I feel that I understand this, so let me check, and you'll forgive me for using a seemingly relatively trivial example, given what we're talking about, but I recall, um, close to two decades ago, having freshly moved to Japan, uh, at the time, I was convinced I'm going to be a writer, I want to be a writer, but I don't spend a lot of my time actually writing, <laughs> which seemed to be a problem towards reaching that goal. So I made the commitment to myself to spend an hour a day every morning, uh, as soon as I wake up, going to the cafe, getting a coffee, and writing a page of something. And after having made that commitment, uh, I... I followed through on it, and by the end of that year, I had one and a half manuscripts written, I had a dream journal that I was keeping, and I had a assorted number of poems and short stories that I'd written along the way. Quite a hefty amount of stuff to show for that commitment change that I made. Uh, the most interesting part of it, from my perspective, was that it wasn't like it was a chore to do so. I woke up every morning actually desiring to go out and write. If I didn't get the chance to do that, it would actually be frustrating to me. So um, that was, uh, it was an interesting experience to have in my life because I came to the conclusion that, oh, I, I get it. I have to become addicted to the type of life I want to lead. <laughs> and <laughs> that seemed to work for me. I don't know if that's exactly what you're referring to, but it seems it's at least along the same lines of what you're referring to. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the powerful things about setting a personal goal, which is which is achieving personal goals, is is often the most one of the most rewarding things we'll ever do in our lives. Because, you know, if someone sets a goal for you, um, you know, and if you achieve that, fantastic. For example, if you if you pass an exam that you need to take to progress in your job, you might think, oh well, that's great, I've passed that. But if you but if your goal is is something that is in, intrinsic to your kind of personal views, your morality, your way, where you, how you want to function and how you want to exist in the world. And you set a goal for that. When you achieve that, and especially if you achieve it through consistently working towards it, that give, often gives us an immense sense of fulfillment um, and an immense sense of achievement, more so than, you know, if somebody else gives you a goal. But, but acceptance and commitment isn't just about, and I think this is an important thing, it isn't just about the really big things. So the behavioural commitment isn't. And in fact, it's the opposite. Because the, the goal might be massive. So the goal might be, for example, creating a free society. Now, as individuals, as individuals, that's very, no, no one person is going to create a free society. That takes collective action. That takes many people together working towards that goal. But the point of acceptance and commitment is to focus on the little steps along the way, because it's the little steps along the way that collectively will take us there. So it is actually about an awareness of what perhaps you might even think is a very mundane choice. So and I, and I think that the, the important part is of getting control of our behaviour and something that you talk about very much in acceptance and commitment is awareness and noticing our behaviour because a lot of this behaviour is automatic. So I'm, 
you know, I'm driving along the road. I want something to eat. Um, I pop into a shop um, and I pay with my card and I leave. And I, I don't even think about it. I just want a sandwich. I just go in there. And uh, The point of acceptance and commitment therapy is to notice that automatic behavior and to, and, and to take control of it. So I go into the shop. They won't take cash, even though I'm hungry. And that's a reality. I feel hungry. I want the sandwich. Am I still going to commit to a behavior which is going to lead me away? Now, that might be lead me away from perhaps my bigger goal, which is freedom. Now, that might seem like such a trivial and banal thing. And obviously, we can't we can't make choices like that with with those kind of goals that are mine all the time. That would be ridiculous because you'd be constantly be referencing your own behavior and checking yourself. And one of the things about starting to use acceptance and commitment therapy and, and, and act is that it does conf- it can feel a bit irritating and a bit annoying, constantly checking in with yourself to see if I'm moving away or towards. But but it becomes second nature. It's a very, very simple model. There's a diagram of, of, of ACT. It's called the ACT matrix, where just you can just move away or towards a behavior, which is something we can visualize mentally once we're familiar with it. But more importantly, when we're familiar with what it means, and then it's, it, it does become like second behavior. You do start to, to do things like you go to the shop and think, oh, they won't accept cash. That's moving me away. I'm not doing that. So it is, it is about breaking it down into the little component behaviors that lead us incrementally, step by step, to the bigger goal. I find it fascinating that in recent years, there seems to have been a resurgence, at least in certain internet circles of stoicism and this conscious awareness and mindfulness of our response to things that are happening to us so that we can better control those responses and thereby control our life to a greater extent at any rate. Um, There are, of course, things that are not within our control. And I think that is that therein can lie the crux of this issue. So I, I want to address this towards the people who find themselves in those dire, desperate circumstances that we were referring to at the beginning of this conversation, talking about people who are, perhaps have lost their job, their livelihood, their income because of their refusal, for example, to go along with vaccine man- mandates, and people who are facing homelessness or other things that they maybe never thought they were ever going to see in their lifetime are coming true. These things are not necessarily things that they can control and they are obviously contributing to a lot of anguish and pain right now. How do we use this type of idea to, uh, if not alleviate that pain or to magically transform your circumstances, at least to change your response to these circumstances? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, and I think it's important that as well that ACT is very much based in reality, so part one of the things that we need to accept, and it's uh, often an idiom used in, in, in certainly in addiction work, is that we cannot change, you know, we cannot change the things that we don't control. So there are, there are external influences that we cannot change. So with that might be, for example, the government or, or, or policy that is, that is separating us physically or putting us under house arrest or so that we cannot control that however we might have we might wish that it were not so 
in which case we might have a goal of moving towards a situation where that doesn't happen. But the point is, what can we control? The only thing really that we can control in any situation is ourselves and our own behaviour. We can't control other people. We can't control, or I hope at least we wouldn't seek to control other people. We can't control organisations. We can't control government, that's for sure. So our behaviour is really all we have that we have control over. But even then, our behaviour is driven by things that we cannot control, such as thoughts, emotions, fears, um, physical pain, our situation, our environment, things that, that, that make us react without thinking. And the point of the, of the mindfulness part, because it's, a, it's, a, it's based on mindfulness and often it helps when you first start um, doing acceptance and commitment work to practice some mindfulness exercises, which can be kind of meditative group, group meditation or even individual at home or, you know, it's just about focusing on ourselves and focusing on the things that we notice that are around us and we notice about ourselves. But the point is not to sp spend one's life sitting in thoughtful contemplation of, of the universe, although there's nothing wrong with that. But the point is to, to gain that control over our behaviour. And we can only control it if we know what's going on and we notice what we are doing. Then we've got an opportunity to make a decision about our behaviour. And that is how behavioural change should be used. That's what it is for. It is not for what the, the nudge units and spy B and tag have been using it for. That's not its purpose. That is a misuse of it. And it's a dangerous misuse of it, um, you know. Well, I would certainly recommend that for people who have not yet delved into the subject, that they at least take a look at your article on this where you lay this out. But I'm sure there are people who would be interested in learning more about this. What would you recommend as resources for people to learn more about acceptance and commitment therapy? Well, just go to a search engine of your choice and look up acceptance and commitment therapy. It is used all over the world. Um, there will almost certainly be acceptance and commitment therapy groups near you. Uh, often it's used as a treatment model. So if you're not in treatment, perhaps it might be you know, difficult to access. But there will always be mindful group, uh, mindfulness groups um, almost certainly near you. Um, and acceptance and commitment therapy is used. If you want to find out about acceptance commitment therapy, um, you have every opportunity to do it. You just need really need to find out your local therapist. I mean, there will be a local acceptance and commitment therapy almost certainly in the in the Western Western liberal democracies. There will be a local acceptance and commitment therapist. And I'm sure you can speak to him. Be happy to talk to you. Well, I want to put the message out there because, as I say, I know there are people in the audience that are going through trauma right now who are experiencing anguish, who have loved ones who are going through this. I want you to know that you are not alone, that there are other people out there for you, and that uh, you should reach out and uh, for help. That is not something to be ashamed of, and uh, everyone needs help and assistance at times, so please do reach out if you are feeling that. And uh, and uh, there will be people to help you. And that's uh, a hard 
a hard thing for a lot of people even to, to get to that point, to admit that they do need changes in their life and that they, it may be out of their control. But I hope people who are thinking about these things will at least look into ideas like we are talking about today and will reach out for help um, when, when you feel you need it. Um, having said that, uh, there's obviously uh, so much to go through with a topic like this that we can only begin to scrape the surface in a conversation at this level. But is there anything else you'd like to leave the audience with before we go? Um, yeah, I'll just echo what you said that, you know, what's been done to us on a population scale is an unethical and quite dangerous thing to do with human beings. It's psychological manipulation. It is brainwashing and it is, and that can have a whole myriad of unforeseen, uh, so, you know, a whole unforeseen results. So it is important to be aware of that, I think. And But also, as you said, James, you know, if you are struggling for difficulty, there are people close to you and around you, service, not just services, but friends and family, hopefully, that you, sh you should talk to. It's, a bit, it's about talking. Acceptance and commitment therapy is one of what they call the talking therapies. Talking therapies have been shown to be very, very effective, even for... Um, you know, uh, uh, biomechanical problems such as schizophrenia and things like that. So even when there's the, 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 the problem is, you might say, something that is way beyond our control, talking therapy and talking things through with people can help. So please do. Excellent. Well, I think that's a good way of at least broaching the subject. As I say, all the links to everything that we've talked about today will be in the show notes for people to start exploring in greater detail. Ian Davis, thank you very much for bringing this to my attention. Thank you very much.